so I, I think I like starting with definitions. And um, in media in particular, when we look back at just the past decade, we've seen a, a really interesting rapid acceleration. By the way, I hate the term content creators or, or just, you know, content. I, I feel like as a creative industry, we should have come up with something better, something <laughs> that, that sounds less like we're creating a commodity mm. and really does more justice to the artistry that is behind a lot of this new generation of creators who are you know, combining media and commerce in, in such seamless ways. Hello and welcome to The Ad Pod, the advertising podcast dedicated to discussing interesting topics with interesting people. Today we're going to be talking about media with Arna Milicevic from Sparrow Advisors. Media is a chunky old topic and it means a lot for us ad professionals as it's where a lot of our ads get placed. In this episode we cover so much from defining what media is to how it has changed for local media and TV as well as how content is created, plus the economics of media at large. This episode is brilliant. It balances facts and figures with strategic perspectives. So I hope that you enjoy it. And if you do, please feel free to share and subscribe. It's super appreciated. Anyway, all that leaves me to say is that I hope you enjoy this episode of The Ad Pod. Hi Anna, welcome to the Ad Pod. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good morning. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, good. Uh, it's a nice full um, morning in New York, so can't complain, can't complain. I hear um, we've uh, Americanized you since you and I last spoke, so uh, so that's, uh, that's a nice change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I'm, I am now married to an American, which when we spoke, I didn't think it was going to happen. So uh, here we are now going through the green card process, which is a joy. But we won't dwell too much on that. We're here to talk about media. But before we do, um, it'd be great to know for those listening a bit more about you. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a quick intro to your career, but also what you do now. Sure. So hey, everybody, my name is Anna Milicevic, and I'm the co-founder of Sparrow Advisors. We're a management consultancy in ad tech, martech, commerce, and adjacent spaces that deals with product strategy, go-to-market, and in-market execution. Basically, we're the ghostbusters that you call whenever you have a problem that your internal teams aren't too sure how to solve or you just need a sounding board. Uh, We've been at it for uh, eight years now, which sounds both ludicrous and like we started the company yesterday. I'm sure a lot of... uh, folks who are entrepreneurs who are listening to this will relate to that sentiment. And I come, uh, I, I've come upon this company through a very lengthy career in mostly in leadership roles across product and strategy in technology and media and entertainment uh, and advertising. So uh, I like to think I know what I'm talking about. A lot of people tell me I do know what I'm talking about. So that's good. That kind of validation is, is always welcome. And uh, yeah, that's that's us in a very quick nutshell. Awesome. And today we're talking about media, uh, in particular, how it has changed, how it has changed, how it is changing, kind of what the future of it holds. 
Um, and we tend to start the podcast with definitions, um, just so everyone's on the same page. So how would you define media? Ooh, uh, sh- should I uh, should I reach for Marshall McLuhan right away, or can we leave that for a little bit later? <laughs> uh, I, I like uh, I like starting with definitions, and I, I think it's always wise whenever you're you're setting off to talk about any topic to kind of set up the ground rules so that everybody in the room understands exactly what it is you're talking about. And I think we see this in a lot of tech companies now who are returning to first principles thinking and kind of, you know, going and going back and challenging some of the assumptions that have arisen over just kind of general business over the last um, decade plus or so. So I I think I like starting with definitions. And um, in media in particular, when we look back at just the past decade, we've seen a, a really interesting rapid acceleration and this transitioning from being um, you know, regular humans to being always on, always connected and living in this instantaneous real-time world where, you know, you and I can very readily summon somebody who's half a world away and, um, you know, have them show us video of what they're seeing and, and similar. This is a very relatively new thing in human history. In the past, we've had a very clear line of demarcation and very clear rules of engagement of what was, you know, print media, what was radio, what was television, how things were produced and uh, and aired and, and kind of pushed towards consumers. And now we're in a situation where we're consuming everything through a tiny screen that's, you know, a few inches from our faces. And those lines between what a medium is have completely blurred. So for me, I define media today as really all manner of communication, of news or information and entertainment that humans consume. And this spans, you know, the the gamut from uh, professionally researched, deeply reported fact checked, wonderfully produced, you know, investigative journalism piece in a magazine through do-it-yourself YouTube tutorials on how to install your air conditioner and not wreck the rest of the electricals in your house, all the way to things like, you know, group chats with friends, because all of this now happens in the same environment. Uh, so media, to, to kind of channel McLuhan, the media is the, the, the message, everything is has become media, and there is no clear line of demarcation of what one type of media is versus another anymore how's that that's great that's perfect um and it is interesting that just how that has changed over time from you know back in the stone age like chalk and slate as media i guess and then you know you had the sort of printing press and the television and now mobile phones kind of some pretty major events but what kind of drives? Yeah, and, and we're, you know, we, we we had thousands of years and then hundreds of years, and now we're measuring media changes almost by the minute because a lot has happened in these past ten years to change our our media landscape, and humans aren't that adaptable to change. We need time to process 
changes. So it's interesting to see a media landscape where media literacy overall isn't that great, but the folks who are media literate are media literate in an environment that almost no longer exists. Sorry, I cut you off there. I thought you were you might have decided to go in a different direction. <laughs> no, sorry. No, sorry. I was just thinking about how how that change has been so um so quick, you know, from um from you know the printing press, television, like I was actually talking about this to a friend the other day. Like I don't consider myself particularly old. And we used to communicate, like we used to chat on text message and mobile phone was quite a novel concept, let alone even social media. Like I was the sort of pre-social media age. And the fact it's called social media itself sort of is um it shows that media is everything, as you were saying. So and it's, it's just yeah, it's the rapid evolution of it all which fascinates me the most, I think. Yeah, I, I catch myself sometimes. My uh, my niece is seven, and you know, I, I I talk to her about the before times, and I swear when I'm talking to her about stuff I did when I was a kid, that must sound to her like you know the Roman Empire sounded to me because I'm talking about these environments where like oh you know you couldn't like just replay something on the internet or look something up in on the internet you like have to think through where, which encyclopedia you could find some information in and then like go to the library and look it up and write it down and bring it home and all of that. And, and I, I don't think that she has the, 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 the capacity to understand just how different that world was. And that wasn't that long ago. And, um, you know, I was watching the, there's a great um, David Beckham documentary on Netflix. Um, if uh, if you haven't seen it, even if you don't like football in particular, it's a really good watch. Netflix has done something spectacular with sports documentaries in particular. They're just so good. And so he's talking about that first super famous goal of his from like the half, uh, half, half pitch mark. I think it was against Wimbledon. This would have been like the mid to late 90s. Again, not that long ago. And how his father didn't actually see him see him uh, hit the goal because somebody in the pub had jumped up in front of him, and there was no means to immediately replay the goal. Like you had to wait for the news or for somebody to show it to you in a broadcast scenario to be able to see it. And I thought, how strange! This is a Again, not that long ago, but it, it's a it's a media world and a world in general that is just unfathomable today. To you know, something happens somewhere and you're not able to almost immediately see it again is is just not a concept we 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 have anymore. Yeah, and um, highly highly recommend that documentary series. By the way, it is so good. As a Manchester United fan, it was like going back to my youth, seeing all the highlights, and they were good times. Uh, less so these days, but let's not dwell on that. Um, it'd be <laughs> it'd be good to go into just a couple of, bit of some specifics, really. Um, so thinking about um, you wrote this brilliant article and you spoke about the change in local media. Um, uh-huh. It'd be great to great to drill into that. So, what has changed with local media and, and kind of why? Oh, this is a a really gnarly topic, but basically, as, as so we we kind of defined 
media as not really having any boundaries anymore. And that's exactly what's happening with local media. In the US media market, relatively recently, prior to the aughts, prior to the explosion in home broadband and the internet, every town had a relatively vibrant local media imprint. Um, And this was the place where you had a couple of investigative reporters who could look into local corruption stories. There was the usual feel-good human interest stuff, but you would be looking at a newsroom of, you know, 20-ish people or so, um, and in larger places, much more significant than that in numbers. So there was this healthy media ecosystem where, you know, if you studied journalism or media and communications or were interested in media, you had a, a local place where you could go to hone your craft before kind of moving on to the national stage or specializing in a vertical and going into trade publications or similar. Uh, the economic model of for local news was largely based on classifieds. So these are your job ads, your you know local uh, news and information, and that was disintermediated by the rise of the internet and the consolidation of classifieds on specialist sites like Craigslist and similar, and then throughout the aughts, the, the rise of social and Facebook. And this flattening of what makes for a local story of local importance and why you should subscribe to your local paper versus what's a national story, an international story, and what should be uh, covered by someone like the New York Times or, or you know, a marquee newspaper. And in other parts of the world, this manifested a little bit differently, but it was that disintermediation of classifieds that led to a severe disruption in local media and the strength of local media. And in the U.S., the situation is particularly dire because media had been such a reliable cash cow in the the wild 80s. There's a lot of interest from uh, private equity and um, similar um, it is similar financial interests that don't necessarily prioritize the quality of journalism or the quality of the consumer facing product that is offered as much as they uh, prioritize the bottom line. And so that has led to a deterioration of what the local news and local media product looks like to the end user. We laugh at you know smaller sites who have to serve Uh, all manner of intrusive ads just to be able to pay the bills. And, um, and, And there's really no obvious and easy economic model to both have a healthy local media environment in the U.S. right now uh, and to make it sustainable. There's a lot of interesting innovation happening on this front right now, but I, I think what's definitely clear is that the way these newsrooms were run in the past is no longer possible and we have to come up with a newer model that is maybe different in scale more focused but is is um is quite looks quite looks and behaves quite different than the media of the past 
so um, yeah, that that's where we are. Not a great time <laughs> no. uh, if you're coming from a legacy um, local paper, but uh, but yeah, but but hopefully uh, close to a newer economic model. Yeah, and it, you know, local media is something which should be supported really like you know i mean there's a lot of things that should be supported with media investment but you think about the value that local media brings to communities to educate and make them aware and share stories and i can't remember the exact number that you quoted in the article but you know it's a lot of local media companies going out of business and it's a quite similar in the uk as well where um you know previously print publications per town like the place where i'm from henley on thames population of nineteen thousand, has its own newspaper had its newspaper when i was growing up but now it's got this online version which to be honest is pretty terrible um and they've managed to stay in business somehow mainly through sponsorship but um you know lots of publications lots of local publications all around the world are suffering and as you say the the economic model which you know the internet's kind of pushed towards scale i guess that it sort of doesn't really support the nicheness of a publication for nineteen thousand people in southwest england <laughs> you know so um it's definitely yeah it's, a, it's an interesting time for local media yeah and and you know at least in in the uk you do have a public service you you have the bbc who who has that mandate of uh, of of local information and, and is um, you know not entirely based in London or not entirely based in in a single hub um, and uh, you know we we do have something similar in the U.S. and other media markets also have that balance of publicly funded and privately held but uh, but but I, I don't think anyone can really say right now that they have the right mix in their country or respective region of of quality of coverage and and how these these things end up funding and so Wayne is referencing one of our uh, newsletters recent newsletters we we publish a monthly newsletter called Sparrow one uh, you can find it on our website and uh, it's just Sparrow one at substack.com as well where we dig into, a single topic every month and and pull some threads both historically and kind of why is this important now to you if you're in, in this particular line of business. So one of the stats that I that we flagged in in this issue, it's called the, the recalculating the new math in media, uh, was that places that have a local newspaper, some kind of local media, the poverty rate is 16% compared to a national average of 11%. So you can make the argument that places that have a strong local uh, media environment have better protections and, and are better run places than those that don't. And when we think about the the role of disinformation in general in the in media diet having something that you can trust and point to and you know like knowing where your local paper is housed is is a, a really really valuable uh connection to the world of media that i think a lot of people in the facebook and, and social media era and this flattening of what's relevant to you as a consumer 
have completely lost the ability to understand who and what type of information to trust. Yeah, entirely, entirely. Um, Just moving on to, I guess, TV. You know, TV has been a sort of mainstream medium for, you know, a long time. Um, but is, is it has and is going through so much change. Um, we'll love to drill into that. So what, what do you think are some of the biggest things that are changing with TV? Yeah, so uh, I think, you know, going back to your what what is the definition of TV uh, would be a good place to start. And, um, you know, when you, let's say you watch a clip from 60 Minutes, but you watch it while you're scrolling uh, Twitter or Facebook and, and you watch the video that's been posted to YouTube, is, is that TV? Because yes and no. <laughs> so the, the, the breakage in TV really started in the late 90s when TiVo launched and started to disconnect the live and linear feed and and create this concept of on-demand, which then Netflix perfected throughout the aughts. Uh, They launched their streaming service in 07. And again, it's, it's not that long ago, but it's hard from this perspective, 2023, to even think back to what the world prior to streaming looked like. Um, and and uh, again, I, I keep talking about, you know, the before times and talking about, you know, NBC's uh, Thursday night primetime lineup that was uh, such a can't miss event, because if you didn't watch a show that was on air, you literally had nothing to talk to your friends about, to your colleagues about the following day. It, it was that kind of unprecedented cultural dominance in the US market and consequently in other global markets because we like to export our culture everywhere, especially TV culture, that that is just very hard to imagine in today's highly fragmented media landscape. So we went from that heyday of, of it's very clear what's working on television to today where we're going, what even is television? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it, it's, it's a tough business to be in because all indicators are pointing towards the death of the linear feed. Um, there's every year, every quarter, there's fewer and fewer cable subscribers. People are very very vivid, visibly opting out of that uh, prior, you know, previously very lucrative, very reliable business model and choosing different flavors of on-demand, different flavors of subscription and ad-supported video content. And that's leaving TV, um, everyone who touches TV, both the telcos that carry it and you know, folks who produce it, everyone involved in the creation of content for, for television in a really tough position where their audience is literally disappearing before their eyes, but they still have these very 
you know, <laughs> creatively crafted contracts and lucrative um, deals that make sense all the way up until the point when they no longer make sense. And I think we we hit a couple of big inflection points. I think it was in 2016 when internet advertising overtook television advertising for the first time in the U.S. That was a big, big um, uh, shift. And then just now, earlier this year, when the total number of people who subscribe to cable, satellite, linear television feeds dipped below uh, 50% of the, the population um, or dipped dip below 50% of, of all TV users. So it's clear that we're shifting towards uh, on-demand content, but what isn't clear is how to really program on-demand content um, and, and you know, does something like Good Morning America, a, a really... You know, formerly powerhouse show for a TV network, does that still make sense in this on-demand world? And kind of what does this on-demand and live mix look like? And um, and it's really challenging to figure that out because on the one hand side, if you're an executive uh, who is in charge of a you know line of business in, in television, your job for the past decade has been to manage decline gracefully because you all know this is coming, but you still have shareholders um, to, to satisfy in the interim and to kind of, you know, keep the boat afloat while it's taking on water and, and starting to sink maybe more rapidly. And ironically, you're probably, you know, quite, quite a you're probably at the tail end of your career maybe you're not that far away from retirement so your incentive to actually rock this boat and and change where it's going and and change how it's sailing is maybe not that great rather than just kind of ride it out right into the sunset with your great golden parachute and just kind of call it a day so I think as, as a lot of things in, in media and entertainment, it's a, it's a perfect mix of audience appetites are changing, driven by technological innovation, and they are changing very quickly on, or on a timescale that is quicker than what media used to operate in. And then the incentives for incumbents aren't as obvious as just kind of managing decline and calling it a day. So not not a, not a great picture, I think, but I'm actually more optimistic about it than than this um, the, the previous couple of minutes may sound. I think whenever you have that type of disruption uh, coming in, there's a, a really interesting opportunity to go back to first principles and re-envision what uh, you know, what a news service looks like in the on-demand era. For example, Mark Thompson just coming into CNN now, that's got to be one of the most interesting jobs out there in, in media in, in my entire generation, probably. And, uh, and so the, the opportunity is clearly there. It remains to be seen if there's going to be enough money and commitment from all the stakeholders that need to come together to really transform uh, TV landscape. That was a yeah. That was a, a really well articulated 
answer to the change in TV and like the, the time that we're in now, um, and particularly with streaming services and connected television um, and on demand, it's fascinating and sort of being driven by the user and also technology. Um, I actually just wanted to go into, because you mentioned it, content creation. Um, there was obviously like a, a lot of news recently around the writer's strike in Hollywood that's kind of just concluded. Uh, there's an actor's strike, which is currently ongoing you know, whilst we're dis- discussing this. So the content yeah. creators are, let's just say, <laughs> not, you know, are also looking at this change, wondering what it means for them. Um, what do you think is driving all of this from the content creator side? By the way, I hate the term content creators or or just, you know, content. I, I feel like as a creative industry, we should have come up with something better, something <laughs> that, that sounds less like we're creating a commodity mm. and really does more justice to the artistry that is behind a lot of this new generation of creators who are combining media and commerce in in such seamless ways that, you know, it's, it's wonderful to watch. And then we're calling it content kind of like when Facebook called the newsfeed, just the feed, like, well, where are we farm animals? We're just showing up here and ingesting something mindlessly. It's that same to me that devalues the end result significantly. And at the same time, I don't have a better word for it. Partly because it's it's so... I know what you mean. As in like, this podcast is, we are creating content, but I am not Martin Scorsese doing some sort of amazing movie. So it's like, uh, I know what you mean about (laughs) the spectrum of it. Yeah. And so, so whoever comes up with a better word for this, please, please send it to me. I, this is a, this is just irking me so much. Um, but yeah, so the writer's strike and actor's strike and other strikes to come are, are particularly interesting because it, it's uh, somewhat cyclical. So the last writer's strike, if you all remember, was in 2007. And that back then it was uh, about renegotiating for DVD rights and and um, accounting for uh, the economics of DVDs because that had not been accounted for in the previous contract. And it's similar now. It, it was it, it the streaming economics of streaming are very different than the economics of uh, creating for linear television, uh, cable television, where you have the concept of residuals when something re-airs. There's a a relatively well-defined number of shows you can make in a year. There's that, that type of ecosystem can function. But when you blow that up and you have Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and, you know, 1800 other streamers creating their own content, producing, running um, their own shows, distributing other people's shows, the econ- there's no longer the concept of a residual. And so how the folks who create 
all of this stuff are compensated is is very much out of balance with the amount of money these shows generate. Um, just take Squid Game, for example. This was a, a significant show for Netflix, but because it's a Korean production, the economics of that to the actors, to the writers, to the folks who made the show were very lopsided and they didn't get to participate in any of the subsequent success that the show um, generated. And that's not a sustainable way to continue making high quality content. Uh, the platform era really equalized what content is. It, you know, something that's really well produced and expensive to make and create could be running next to this podcast that you and I are making that is not doesn't require a lot to put together. It's, you know, two people, a couple of microphones and Zoom. That's what our production budget, maybe $25 if, if that. And, but in an environment where you can run ads against both of those pieces of content and basically make roughly the same amount of money from ads and, and, and the monetization mechanisms that you have, from content that's expensive to produce and very inexpensive to produce, well, guess what type of content is going to get produced more? And, you know, that then leads to second, third order effects of a general change in what is the type of content and media that we're consuming. So the, the last strike in 2007 directly led to a rise in the production of uh, reality television. And on that was on the entertainment side and cheaper to produce. None of these people were in the union. You could pay them peanuts. There was no minimum contracts and they all just wanted to be on TV and run their mouths. So it was very easy. And then that similarly on the news side led to the rise of opinion, which presented itself as if it were reporting because it was in a studio, there were, you know, TV-like effects, etc. But it was, you know, just mainly men in blazers again running their mouths on things they don't necessarily know much about. And uh, and that has led to this media ecosystem that we have today where um, the underlying economics of uh, how things get produced are not sound. And until that gets addressed, it's going to be very difficult to continue creating good stuff. Yeah. And as you say, it's getting easier, really, and um, to create the content. And I, you know, I, I look at some of the stuff you see on youtube that my nephews watch i mean it's literally someone with uh, a train <laughs> a, a toy train going around it's got a gazillion views um <laughs> they're making a ton through like ad revenue and so you've got from that level all the way through to sort of high-end produced content which you know movies which have multi-million dollar budgets um how you make all those work economically and what that means long term i think for 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 content it's 
it's fascinating and I think it's also been interesting seeing some of the sort of inverted commas traditional media companies um who are you know obviously adapting to the change in how media is consumed um so thinking about you know Disney for example looking at selling off their linear tv divisions um others you know creating streaming services or, or streaming service partnerships what do you see you know from from these all these big traditional media companies like a Disney, Comcast, Sony, where will they place their bets? Um, where do you think they what some what are some of the things you think they'll do? Ah, they're they're in the midst of a bit of an identity crisis. Um, all of them, you know, should they focus on production? Should they focus on distribution? Can they do it all? Um, in in our strategy engagements, uh, when we work with companies that are, you know, working through a similar kind of challenge, like where should I place my, or, or my bets? One of the things we like to do is is kind of eliminate all prior constraints. So we we go through this exercise with you know if you were starting this company today, what would you do differently? Would you have a different technology stack? Would you pick different partners? What would you focus on? And if you had no no legacy baggage what would you do? And then that helps inform where you ultimately want to go. And then you can kind of backtrack from where you are today and, and make a path. And, um, you know, they're all going through some variant of that kind of reassessment. And, you know, I, th- I think there's really no right or wrong answer here, but all of them have a very short runway because they're all public companies. So the timeline of being able to execute this kind of change is usually multiple quarters strung together and they still have to hit their quarterly numbers and, and answer to shareholders before someone like, you know, Elliot or a similar activist investor shows up and starts knocking on their door and demanding a, a board seat and, and wanting to rehash things. So I wish if I had a magic wand, I wish there was a a way to flip between being a public company and being a, you know, kind of company in the midst of transformation that uh, maybe provides that kind of shareholder liquidity, but there's an understanding that the timeline is not quarter by quarter, but, uh, but longer so that they have the necessary runway and commitment to be able to say, all right, it's going to take us 18 months to do this. And we're committed to it and we're doing it and we don't care what that does in the short term or, you know, not don't care, but there might be disruptions in the short term. But if you all are on board for the 18 month vision, let's go. And they don't really have that luxury. So I I think for a lot of them, it's that trade off between, you know, managing declining lines of business potentially off when Viger threw that bomb saying that they might, you know, offload their, their linear stuff that, that really is, is if you went back in time to somebody in 2005 and told them that Disney is thinking of linear TV assets, they would have thought you were completely insane. This is a cash cow business. This is a, you know, this is about as sure a bet as, as one can have, and yet here we are. So 
I think that they need to uh, suffer through this transformation um, period. And it's much harder for them than for companies uh, like Netflix who, who arisen with some of these paradigms already baked in and, and not necessarily having that much legacy baggage uh, to deal with. Yeah, and I think that legacy. So yeah, like, um, se- yeah, yeah. Go, Go on, going semi private, I think, is the, the the smartest thing they can do, probably. <laughs> yeah, and as you were saying that, I was thinking about the recent Barstool example where they got acquired and then got sort of spun back out because they presented in, apparently too much of a risk. I think it was Depensky, and so but so Barstool don't have these limitations as you know now a private company mm-hmm. they can and their content is pretty pretty. Um, cutting at times um and so i think yeah i think being large public you know uh probably somewhat risk averse uh will be what will be a huge challenge for some of these companies trying to overcome yeah i think so um just looking into the sort of final couple of questions before we wrap up today um we've kind of spoke at length about sort of the change in media you know, historically, where we're at now, it's a very interesting time. Um, the podcast is called The Ad Pod. Um, what do you think it means for advertisers? Um, how do they uh, think about this change that's happening in media? Well, advertisers are, are stuck in an interesting position where they're increasingly facing hostile environment in which their you know messages aren't exactly welcome and entire audiences are opting out of ads altogether and choosing to pay with with actual money to not have to deal with ads and a lot of this is our own fault as advertisers we uh we're very concerned with serving an ad and not as concerned with where that ad is ultimately showing up and what the rest of the experience around that ad looks like. And, uh, and, and we're now in a situation where, you know, regular people, not advertising professionals, you know, they, they spend a lot of time on their mobile devices the ad load of over the course of a given day is enormous and we you know banner blindness and and general oblivion towards advertising is a long documented fact but we're getting to a point where advertisers and media companies that that are um, and, and platforms that are serving the ads need to show as many ads as possible to make money and the user no one's really caring about the users no one owns the overall user experience so if i had a crystal ball moment both for media owners and advertisers to kind of hopefully project predict a one major change that could make things makes sense it would be you know and maybe this is a little bit counterintuitive but I, I do hope we go in this direction it's it's to further blend what is the actual 
content and what is the advertising so that advertising feels integrated and feels like it's part of what you're consuming and it isn't uh you know fly out window with an autoplay audio blasting video ad for something you don't care about when you're just trying to read a recipe or you know how to put together your kid's toy or, or something along those lines so i i think it means going more in the direction of sponsorships, long-term sponsorships, support and partnerships, more product placement, but tasteful product placement, product placement that makes sense and not, you know, superimposing a, a beverage in in front of a, uh, you know, in front of something that you're watching or like running a mid-roll in the middle of of something that you're interested in. And, um, you know, more messaging that would be woven into whatever it is you're choosing to spend your attention on. So I, I think for for everyone in media, it needs to be about experience. I love that. I think that is the perfect way to end the discussion around um, sort of integrating advertising into media so that consumer has great experience. Um it's been a great chat, Anna. I really, really appreciate it. Um, if people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go to find out more? Uh, yeah, so we are uh, surprisingly online. Uh, so the, our website is sparrowadvisors.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, and you can find me on the many different Twitter clones now as AEXM, uh, Threads, Blue Sky, and other friends. Uh, and yeah, just uh, generally out there, check out our uh, newsletter as well. You can uh, find that on our website. Um, like and subscribe, as the content creators say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're we're out there. Amazing. Thanks, Anna. I really appreciate it.